Hello and thank you for listening to the fourth season of the iStart PIA Relay podcast, brought to you by Dementia Researcher. iStart is a professional society and part of the Alzheimer's Association, representing scientists, physicians and other dementia professionals active in researching and understanding the causes and potential treatments of Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. In this five-part series, we've asked members of the iStart professional interest areas to take turns at interviewing their colleagues and being interviewed themselves with the interviewee going on to be the next episode's interviewer. We're sure you've listened to these before, so you'll know what to expect. We'll be releasing one of these podcasts each day in the build-up to the Alzheimer's Association International Conference, which this year takes place online and in Amsterdam. So sit back, turn up the volume, and be ready to hear about these individuals' amazing research fields, the work of the peers, and just what you can expect at this year's conference. Thank you for listening. Hello and thanks for tuning in. I'm Dave Cash and I'm a research fellow at the Dementia Research Center in London at the UCL Queensware Institute of Neurology. I'm also the incoming chair of the Neuroimaging PIA. Today I'm delighted to be talking with Dr. Shana Stites, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania. Hi Shana. Thanks for Hi, taking Dave. time to be part of the Relay podcast. Uh, can I start by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us uh, which PA, PIA, PA you're involved with. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here and it's very nice to meet you. Um, like you said, I'm Shana Stites. I'm a, I'm a clinical psychologist by training and I am a currently co-chair of the Diversity and Disparities PIA and then an incoming chair. And how long have you been involved with the, the Diversity and Disparities PIA? It's been a few years. I think it was pre-pandemic. So uh, right as things started getting going, I guess, 2018, 2019. And um, perhaps you can uh, start, tell us a little about your own research and what brought you to dementia research. So I investigate or I, or I study the preclinical experience of Alzheimer's disease. And so these are individuals who may have and may know they have uh, biomarkers that signal a future risk of developing dementia. But at the current time, they're mostly sort of cognitively typical. And I'm interested in that lived experience, what it's like to learn you're at risk, what it's like to be, be at the early part of experiencing some of those declines, and how to help people optimize their uh, quality of life and their well-being during that, that period, uh, as well as how we detect some of those most early changes in our subjective cognition. And um, what brought me to dementia research was that that people and the large number of opportunities that have exploded in the recent years, it's very exciting work to be sort of on the uh, precipice of these advances in diagnosis and treatment and, and helping people live better. And of course, recognizing some of the disparities that exist within dementia, whether that's sex-based, gender-based, or race-based, uh, really resonated with me in terms of uh, seeing opportunities to help mitigate, understand and mitigate those disparities. And I mentioned, uh as trials are moving more towards the, the, the area of groups that you're uh, studying, this sort of discussion around disclosure and how to handle uh, people being at risk is a real uh, important one to be having. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's multiple levels here, right? Like within the trials, what's the proper best way to be uh, returning this information in terms of this information, the results from gene and biomarker testing to individuals? And then uh, much of my work sort of starts to lean into like what happens to individuals either in preparing them to learn that information, right? When people come to the table before they even learn the result, 
what type of anticipations do they have and how do those expectations and anticipations uh, inform how they're going to respond to that result? And there's, of course, um, sociocultural differences in how people approach just the entry into learning that information. And then post the disclosure, once people have that information, what do they do with it? Right? Is it one and done and they move on to other things? Or um, who are the people that start to accommodate that information into their daily lives to make changes in financial planning or um, wellness activities or health-related behaviors? Maybe you could talk a little bit about, are, are there sort of some common um, effects that it might have on some of the, the, the battery that you're taking? Because I know when we've dealt with uh, patients with autosomal dominant uh, forms of dementia, they... Um, we tend to see some, you know, problems with cognition or anxiety or other things sort of masked, you know, even when they're not carriers in the long run. Yeah, that's, uh, it's so complicated, right? I mean, we have things called like these mysterious age-related changes that are happening that can present differently for one group of people to another. And then we can have that multi-morbidity going on in which we can see changes in cognition that may be due to an Alzheimer's specific pathology or may not be, right? And um, there's also a curious, just to add further to that, there's this curious finding that we don't quite have a handle on what types of pathologies are causing or leading more directly to what types of symptoms. And we, and we also don't know when, right? People can be identified with biomarkers decades before or never start to show those symptoms. And so from the lived experience end of it, uh, it can leave people with a lot of ambiguity, right? They have a marker. They're not sure what that marker indicates, if anything, and how quickly they might need to make changes if changes can help them or, or maybe not at all, right? Maybe it's not useful. We still have so many questions that are on the table. And I, and I think in terms of diversity and disparities work, it's understanding that picture overall in the context of all kinds of new biomarkers that are coming out, but then also increasing our representation and diversity in research to understand how those types of expectations, reactions, and calculus might vary for different groups of people. And, and coming to that sociocultural uh, element you were talking about, it, I imagine that um, there might be sort of different cultural expectations on the sort of external caregiving unit and what they are required to do depending on uh, cultural backgrounds and things like that. Yes, actually that's, um, you know, a, a two-part sort of response to you because um, okay. it's, <laughs> if you, we, you started out asking about trials, right? We have this study partner requirement in our, our prevention trials. So individuals who are interested in enrolling in the trial are asked to enroll with a knowledgeable informant who can report on their cognition and um, adherence to protocols and, and other parts of daily life. And right now in our prevention trial, there's a huge effort in the field, which is great, to increase the sociocultural diversity in those trials. But by and large, it's a pretty homogeneous group. It's mostly women, it's mostly white, and then when we start to think about study partners, it's either mostly spouses, so husbands of women, um, or it's daughters of women, right? And that's pretty much who we get to study in terms of who's enrolling in the prevention trials. There's some interesting studies that are coming out in looking at those dyads to see that you know who you are and who's rating you matters, 
right? How you, how you, you report on somebody else's memory, for example, can differ based on whether you're a son, a daughter, a spouse, and it can vary based on the, who you're rating, whether that's your mom or your wife or your husband or your son. Part two is to say that diversity is really limited, right? I can say it's mostly women in the trials and mostly women reporting on women and mostly white and mostly older adult. But we need to, when we actually look at the, the burden of Alzheimer's disease more broadly, it's a much more diverse community. It crosses sociocultural groups. Right, um, African Americans are one of the subpopulations that experience the greatest burden from Alzheimer's disease, and yet we we understand that caregiving structures and then likely informant structures would also differ within the, that subculture, those subgroups. But we don't know. Uh, there's not a lot of research in that area to understand um, how to then change our research structures to get more diversity in research, and how that diversity in informants. And, re and participants or patients is going to change um, how people report on each other and how they view each other and, and understand cognition. Sorry, that was a lot to get out there. And, and I guess there's the sort of the, the missing data question of the, those people who are unable to find caregivers. What do they look like and, and that, what are the implications to diversity and disparity there? That, that's right. So from the little bit that we know about this in the research, um, comes from some of our standing cohort studies like HRS. And if we look at HRS and who's enrolling as an informant or acting as an informant in that study, what we find is that it's the same, a similar structure, mostly spouses, mostly adult daughters. But then we actually, we see some sons that are stepping up. And then there's this other, this category that gets lumped into other. And we really need to learn more about that group because in there we have ants, uncles and grandkids and neighbors and all sorts of um it's it's more about like who do people have relationships with right who are willing to step into this role when we stop putting them viewing those relationships through um well-defined social structures like um children and spouses there's a lot of different people who might be willing to step up but we may need to make changes to our research infrastructure to make that more possible for those individuals who would be considered non-traditional to step into those roles. I guess in, in some, one of the first steps, I guess is sort of outreach or kind of making people understand who can be a caregiver and in in those sorts of things. A caregiver um, and who, what a family looks like, an informant, because um, we have researchers, when I say the we, have fairly rigid views of who we think informants can be or should be or are. We form those views based through our sociocultural understanding, perhaps who we see in clinic, right? Who is also a sort of a self-selected group who's coming in. It's, it's a biased lens. Um, and so one of the, to your point, it would be expanding our understanding of who we think could fill that role and what family systems and um, care networks and friend networks look like. It would also be challenging some of the attitudes within the field. There is some pressure in research to standardize, right? To put protocols in place and diversity can be the antithesis to that. We can see it as a threat to that infrastructure. Um, and we, you can see that within the informant literature, right? If we get all spouses or we get them between spouses and children, then, then we're narrowing in, we're making it more homogeneous in ways that might protect or ensure the reliability and the validity of our research. And we really need to push back against those ideas because 
we're trying to get towards diversity, right? And the minute we start to protect our research from diversity, we're now working against ourselves. Yeah, it's that it's that problem of squeezing variability as much as you can, but at what cost in terms of reducing what it says about the overall population? Um, so uh, what are the hot topics and exciting areas in your field at the moment? Uh, well, some of it we're already talking about in terms of uh, diversity and inclusion and representation within research. That's a very hot topic. We're very interested because as you as we look around the field, no matter where you see, you see the, sort of the same storyline of our research samples, our clinical populations are far too homogeneous and we need to expand who uh, is joining, who we're asking to join and who we're inadvertently keeping out. Hot topic. Uh, another hot topic, and this might be coming up for AIC in particular, it's on our mind, are these emer emerging therapeutics and what that means uh, for equity uh, in ADR, in Alzheimer's disease research. There are some drugs that are now um, either coming positive in our prevention trials or even being approved by some of our um, federal agencies. And so as those drugs start to come to market, there's going to be a lot of decisions around what are the criteria for a patient to access them, for a clinician to prescribe them, and where they might be accessible. We'll be having a panel at our PIA day at AIC that will um, invite some experts into to talk on those matters. Actually, yeah, real interesting uh, results according to sex in some of those trials, uh, from what I remember, and that they were positive um, for, for one, but but not for the other, from what I remember, or, or very marginal. Yeah, that there's, um, I think, are you talking about the lacanumab trial was yeah. one of the ones that yeah. came out? Yeah, there definitely seems like there's there's something there. I think this signal was attenuated, where it just didn't seem to perform quite as well across as many of the me outcome measures they were using in the study. Absolutely. And that brings us to um, issues around uh, APOE and APOE4 in particular, and how these drugs might perform differently based on uh, the presence of alleles for individuals related to APOE. Uh, and for diversity and disparities focused researchers, we understand that APOE varies across our subpopulations, our sociocultural groups. And so understanding how that interaction may occur between um, the efficacy of some treatments in various subgroups and how it could vary. I seem to remember you you've just come out recently last year or so with a with a big review article. Is that is that right? You, did you want to tell a little bit about that? Or, Thank you. Seems for that. to highlight a lot of these. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was actually um so the the one that came out most recently was a review of biomedical research. Uh, we went through the existing peer reviewed literature to understand how individuals, how researchers in biomedicine, so outside AR, Alzheimer's disease, have been studying sex and gender. What are the measures they use, basically? We didn't get into definitions of those things, but just how are they measuring it? With the hopes that if we could understand some good examples of how these things are being measured in other areas of biomedical science, we could help inform our burgeoning studies in that area within Alzheimer's disease. And so that review came out in Alzheimer's and dementia um, diagnosis and, ma and management, I believe, DADM. Um, Trying to remember the rest of it. Uh, and it was, it was quite interesting in terms of there being very, even when you expand the lens out to biomedical science writ large, um, there's not a lot of diversity 
in the types of measures. We found actually a sort of a reiteration of a prior review we did that was specific to Alzheimer's disease, where in most cases, sex and gender are being measured by self-report, where there's um, in, individuals indicate whether they're men or women. There's a lack of protocols and a lack of clarity if, if we are going to try to differentiate be, between this construct called sex, and that's usually more biologically informed, or one that's called gender that's more socially informed, um, the measures aren't doing that, right? So how would we move measures forward that would allow us to, to make an attempt at um, discerning our, how people report their identity as being a biological identity or sociological identity? And there is some of that work going on. In fact, NAC has just updated uh, version four of its battery, which NAC is the National Alzheimer's Disease Coordinating Center. Uh, and it puts out the batteries that are collected throughout the Alzheimer's Disease Research Centers here within the US. And so they've updated their battery to now be collecting sex um, as assigned at birth, as well as uh, current gender identity and sexual orientation. So that new battery will be coming out. Um, but as this review article that we put out uh, also started to get to, we is there weren't any other types of measures or very few that were being used in terms of um, how are we discerning hormone profiles or other variables that might capture, the, the point being, how do we capture human variance, right? That's the bottom line. And the fact is, if we keep relying on self-report identity to do it, we're missing um, hormones vary across groups, um, physical size, anatomical structures, the medical histories, right? All of these things vary across subgroups in our populations. And at this point, our review was showing that there's maybe one or two measures out there, one or two studies where that's been looked at across biomedical science. And we really need to get better at doing that. And I think also in that review, you talk about how sort of, uh, you know, gender norms and identity change across generations in different cultures. And kind of getting back to a point you made earlier, how do we, how would you propose doing some things that might harmonize data so that you can use work across studies versus embracing the diversity uh, that, that's going on there? So I think we can do both where we can harmonize and appreciate diversity. Um, we do have a big problem right now, <clears throat> two big ones, <laughs> just as a starting place. One of which is there's a, an interest. I was just on a webinar yesterday from uh, National Institute on Aging that was looking at different data sources and harmonization. And in terms of sex and gender measures, it's very risky as we start to harmonize across measures because the studies, the protocols have uh, been really insufficient in at least documenting how those variables were collected. It's so wide ranging that in some cohorts, you know, it was really a research coordinator looking at a person and making a determination of what category they fall into. In other studies, they were asking about a sociologic identity, where in other studies, they were asking about a biologic identity. So when we start to think about trying to harmonize across all of these data sets, we're, we, we're taking a risk there because our vari we don't know that our variables are really in a position that we can assume, what we're assuming is static. And then secondly, our, the review article that we had come out earlier this year um, revealed that there are some measures of gender that were developed and are US centric that are being picked up and used globally. And we really need to take a pause at that point 
gender varies over time and, and culture. And to be thinking that we can just pick up measures from one place and use them in another place, um, what we could be doing is actually enforcing our norms from one culture into uh, the, onto the norms of another culture, which is, I, I'm not sure, I can say actually pretty firmly, that's not the intention or the purpose of our research, right? We wanna go into a culture and understand the, the variance that's happening, not nece necessarily transform it through our research into something else. And it seems like, you know, with the cognitive tests, there's been a lot of translation into different languages and some thought about some of the cultural elements in those cognitive tests. So why wouldn't we be doing the same thing in, in these sorts of measures that you're talking about? That's an awesome point. Yeah, I think I think <laughs> I believe that we can do it, you know, um, I, and I think that it's the right thing to do. And I think that we as a community recognize that we just haven't gotten there. But it means it also means that understanding and studying sex and gender within Alzheimer's disease is even farther behind where some of the other things that we're studying, like cognition or such, are much more advanced, um, which then raises another uh, issue because those things aren't separate, right? Like when we do our cognitive testing, we rely on our sex-based norms to adjust those tests. And the more we dig into the problems and sufficiencies with how we're studying uh, and understanding sex and gender within our research, it cast out downstream effects on other parts of our research too. So again, there's just, we have um, over 800 people in our diversity and disparities PIA, which is fairly large, but I feel like we could use several thousand more because there's just so much work to be done. I started uh, a great organization to go ahead and get started in. So there's, and it's, it's free to join the PIAs once you're a member of ISTART. So uh, there's no reason not to, to join in these sorts of things. Uh, different PIAs and, and hear more about it. Um, speaking of the PIA, maybe uh, talk a little bit about how uh, the work of your PIA you believe supports uh, the field of your, your, your field of research. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can say, you know, from my work specifically, as well as the broader Alzheimer's disease community, um, our PIA has been doing great work. I feel like we're getting better and better each year that passes in being uh, a main function being that we bring together people from a wide range of disciplines who all have a shared common interest in diversity and disparities work. And through bringing those folks together, they write review articles. And we also have uh, workshops and meetings. Uh, we have special interest groups, which are smaller collections of the 800 people within our PIA get together and uh, attend talks and share ideas and actually sometimes have quite robust conversations. So that exchange of information and ideas, that's absolutely crucial. And then coming out, that's what happens within RPA. Coming out of RPA, some of these review articles that we write is synthesizing research from um, that otherwise I'm not sure would be getting out in the world quite the same way. And people are um, at least pointing to other articles through that research that um, the broader community can access and drill down on. You talked a bit about, I get, you know, how some of the research is a bit behind and, and there are sort of norms around gender that are kind of established. And, and I was just wondering um, how much pushback you get from both the participants and the researchers when talking about these different elements of diversity and disparity um, and how much do you think the PIA can help break down some of that pushback? Oh, that's a good question. I started looking at that question, I think a couple of, a year or so ago, 
as the conversation was happening about introducing um, so what's called SOGI questions to NAC and other research cohorts. These are the sexual orientation and gender idea identity. And so it's really about asking people the sex they were assigned at birth, how they current, what their gender identity is currently, and then their current sexual orientation. And there was a lot of concern within the field that those questions were going to be problematic. And in fact, cause participants to, um, to not want to be part of the research or to skip questions or just, you know, quit a questionnaire altogether. And I was curious about that. Um, and that was how I, I sort of started looking into some of this. We started pilot testing some of these batteries. And for the most part, most people um, of our older adult participants don't blink an eye. They just answer these questions. Occasionally you might get somebody who has a question about them, but not even so much in the current version of the questions we're using because they're pretty clear. You know, what sex were you assigned at birth? Most people were assigned to sex at birth. Um, I think it actually even goes so far as to specify like on your original birth certificate. So there's like no ambiguity. People can understand how to answer those questions. And the why most people um, in the hundreds of people so far that I've seen the questionnaires be administered to, I think I had one person. Um, and then I did an online survey of 3,500 people and I had one person who took issue with it. And so I'd say the base rates there, at least for our participants, of, of having problems with these questions is very low. Most people are fine. I've heard a lot of actual positive things from people who especially identify as sex and gender, from sex and gender minoritized communities of being thrilled to see these questions because they feel like they're being recognized and that it's a safe space for them to participate. On the research end, it seems a little messier for researchers. <laughs> um, there's, there's some very legitimate concerns that have been expressed, right? People are concerned about, there's an element of redundancy in some of these questions. And so in research cohorts where we're jammed with questionnaires, right? How, we can't afford a lot of redundancy. And so some people are irritated by that. Um, other people are concerned that as we parse out these smaller and smaller groups, that our cell sizes might lead to some groups being excluded from research, right? We, if we identify, um, let's say we can come up with a pool of a specific type of um, minoritized gender community, but there's only five people in that cell, what do we do with those individuals? And those questions haven't been answered because there's a few different options, right? But those conversations aren't happening for what we do. So in large, there's a concern that it might that our efforts to be more inclusive in our research may have downstream negative consequences on leading people to be excluded. And then of course, there's a group within the research community that's sort of sees this as one more change, right? As researchers, we're highly adaptive to change. It's, we study science, we make discoveries, and then we change our science based on those discoveries. And they see the, the evolution of our studies and inclusion of sex and gender as being like all of those other areas in research where discoveries are made, um, narratives change, and then our research is then changed in reaction to that. A lot to consider even when, when the, the, the motives are, are good and, and the, um, um, the pushback is, is not as, as bad as, as one might think. Um, so regarding the peer, um, Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about 
the, the committee itself, how you guys organize your group. You mentioned a little bit about some of the subgroups, but um, a little bit more. So um, we have an executive committee that has a chair, a co-chair, a programs chair. I think most of the PAs are structured sort of the same way. Um, chair, co-chair, programs chair. We have a um, graduate student or student liaison. Um, I feel like there's someone else I'm missing in there. And a communications chair. That's how he makes up the executive committee. And then we have um, special interest groups and working groups. And really, I, I, I'd say the difference between them is really a structural, um, only structural in terms of what ISTART was forming at the time, or, um, the terminology that ISTART was using at the time these groups were formed, I think is the bottom line of that. Um, so we have a special interest group that's on um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender issues. Uh, we have one that's on sex and gender from a um, more of a social or sociological perspective. I want to discern that from the PIA that's on sex and gender from more of a, or sex differences that's focused more on biological issues, right? And then we have some working groups on social and structural determinants of health and rural health. Um, and there's one, and uh, low and middle income countries with a primary emphasis of that working group being um, expanding some of our research infrastructure globally, and of course, diversifying uh, participation in research. And those are the groups that are coming up with the, a lot of the white papers, it sounds like, in the review articles, is that right? They're That's correct. Okay. Yeah, I think at this point, each, um, each one of those groups has either published or is in the process of writing. Oh, um, a, a review paper. Yeah. And that's a great way for people who want to get involved to reach out to one of these groups to ask um, what sort of papers are underway. Those who already wrote a paper, I think some of them are back actually looking at another one. Just because we have so much um, expertise within these special interest groups and working groups in the PIA at large that it makes sense, right, for people to be getting together and being excited about ideas and then turning those ideas into papers. And how long has the PIA been going? I think it's, I'm going to say it's a eight years at this point. Okay. It might, that might be a little long. So I came in after it had been about a year or two in. So doing the math puts us around six or seven, I think. <laughs> okay. And is it the uh, sort of the, the two year for some of the, the, the leadership staff, it's two years, then two years, then two years as past chair. So it's kind of a, a six year sort of involvement with the PIA. Yeah, for some of those, for some of the groups, right? I'm not sure how the, if this is universal for all the PIAs, but some of our, um, for our SIGs and for our working groups, there's a new policy that's coming in that you're part of that leadership for two years and then you rotate out. I imagine you could go on to leadership in another SIG or working group or not at all if you wanted to transition out. And then within the executive committee for the PIA, uh, there's a two-year transition between the co-chair to the chair and then the past chair. So that's the six years you're getting to. Um, but then for communications chair and program chair, there's not an automatic, it's a two-year term, but I don't think it's an automatic transition to another position. Um, also for our student liaison. Yeah, hopefully your students wouldn't be liaisoning for six years. That's, that's for... <laughs> can, can I do something that's sort of... Um, could I sure. turn around to ask you a question? Because just because I'm so mm -hmm. happy to be meeting you. You're such a celebrity in our world. 
<laughs> I don't know about that, but sure, go ahead. Uh, um, would you, could you help me understand how diversity and disparities work is relevant to your work or how you, you may not engage with it directly, but how you see it as being useful to the field and useful to what you're trying to accomplish? Two things come out right off the bat. Um, one is uh, I work primarily in, in imaging biomarkers. So uh, understanding uh, how the different imaging signatures look in terms of diversity and disparity um, is important in un to understand you know, what's changing, rates of change, characterizing heterogeneity, uh, especially if we're thinking about you know, how you design clinical trials, because a lot of what I want to look at is uh, how we can design clinical trials better, um, make them more efficient, get drugs that are actually working to market quicker. Um, I think a second one that's a, it's a big topic is around uh, the role of artificial intelligence in imaging. And do we have training sets that are representative of a larger population? Um, and are we much like a lot of the, the genomics, you know, that are kind of limited to, to more of a affluent white European ancestry? Um, is there the potential risk that our artificial intelligence would misclassify things, not do as well on different groups uh, as possible? Um, and then I think just, you know, access to imaging, uh, if I can, can add a third one here, which is um, a lot of these drugs are going to require a lot of active uh, MRI scans to assess safety, uh, maybe some PET scans at some point to assess if uh, people are um, showing, uh, you know, PET scans, pathology. Uh, who has access to those scans? What makes them more or less likely to uh, be willing to participate in a scan? Do they understand what a scan involves? Um, so I think we, we've, I haven't been looking at this directly um, there's some some really interesting diverse East London cohorts that are beginning to come online, and I think uh, we're all interested to look more at the the imaging that are coming from them. That's really exciting, and certainly like the t the top three. I think, especially being on the fly like that, I appreciate your willingness to just <laughs> do it and do it so well. Um, will you humor me for a follow up? Sure. So one of the things that um, is a topic in our PIA that comes and goes in terms of like, it's always there, but sometimes it's uh, the chatter about it rises up to higher levels, is the difference between um, difference and disparity, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. there are just differences. And sometimes those differences have negative effects on whatever is important to us. And, and we call those disparities, right? Um, something is not parallel that should be parallel. And it's really hard or one of the challenges we face within the PIA is knowing when it's a difference and um, an aspect of diversity just to embrace for being what it is. And when it's something problematic that we need to lean in and say like, mm. oh, we need to do this differently. And where this is resonating with hearing you talk about your top, the top three issues is that there's so many ways in which um, we vary as humans, diversity, right? Not disparities, mm. but like the diversity of the human experience. In some ways we're so homogeneous. But in other ways, when you start pushing into biomarkers and measurement, there are so many different ways that we have this natural variance. What are your thoughts on either diversity versus disparity 
or how you approach the wide number of ways in which we, we are diverse to figure out where you're going to focus in, in, in terms of developing these biomarkers. Wow. <laughs> okay. Um, one of the things that we've been, that I've been fortunate to be involved with is some of these uh, more data-driven disease progression models that kind of don't make a lot of assumptions about underlying labels uh, of, of different people, but just try to cluster the heterogeneity a bit more. Um, and I think that's that's a helpful way of doing it in some regards, provided that we have a diverse cohort underneath, because then what I like about these models is you don't apply the labels ahead of time. But then when you look at the clusters, you know, this subtype is this, this subtype is that, then I think maybe we can look a little bit about disparities there, because then we're talking about increased atrophy rate or increased white matter hyperintensity or earlier onset of the, of the disease or, or the biomarkers um, and see if there is a bit more explanation of what heterogeneity we can see linking it to what, what could be diversity and is that cluster itself somewhat of a disparity because it's showing um, a more se severe disease trajectory or is it showing more resilience? Um, so I think that's one place where I'm coming in it. Um, and at the second element is uh, the commonality is important as well uh, in some respects, because uh, as you said, we can chop and change things quite a bit, but ultimately we need a drug that works across as many population groups as possible. And this is one of the things that I always get a little bit frustrated when people look at trial enrichment and they don't realize that okay, we've reduced our population to 10%. So you're going to have a super high screen failure rate. Um, and you're not going to be able to give the drug to a lot of people because it's not on label. But you've you've done a really good job dropping your variability down. Well done. So it's kind of uh, that those are kind of the, the areas I'm thinking about it. I, I like that we can go back and look at potential sources of these things. But also we have to think about big picture um, do we have drugs that are generally effective? And then, then we can drill down and see, okay, are these drugs more effective than others? Do they help predict response or adverse safety events more than others? I see. That makes a lot of sense. That's so helpful to hear you sort of talk through your, your thinking and your reasoning on the matter. It also, not sure if you, it also, um, brings to bear just how important diversity in, in, in inclusion is. Right, that underlying sample is really the place where you're starting, because otherwise you're going to be identifying clusters in homogeneous groups or, yeah. or clusters that aren't relevant to the outcome that you're interested in. So I could, it, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And and we can't we can't we can't measure this heterogeneity if we're missing sixty or seventy percent of the population, you know, in that regards. Um, so uh, I'll finish up. It's been really great talking. I've had a really fun conversation uh, hearing about your research and, and, and what your PIA does. Um, tell everybody what, what your PIA has planned, what, what its aims are for the coming year. Um, and, and you mentioned a little bit already what you guys have planned for AIC, but are, are you presenting yourself as well or other, yeah. other, other members of your PIA? Yeah, I think actually we have a lot of members of the PIA that will be presenting at AIC. I'll have some work on social and structural determinants of health. Um, 
We have a PIA day that will be going on with this panel talking about the emerging therapies. Uh, we'd love everybody to come to that. Uh, we have multiple posters and talks that are going on, and I believe most of them are going to be tagged with the, the hashtag for the diversity and disparities PIA. So when the uh, program finally comes out, I would encourage people to follow that hashtag and then you'll be able to find the listing. Um, I think we have at least 20 posters out there from postdocs. We have 100 from students. There's a lot of work that's going to be um, at AIC. And then for the next year moving forward, we are starting to think about what webinars we're going to be doing. Um, we'd be interested to hear from people. They can always drop us an email on topics or in, in fact, they're done with webinars and don't want to hear any more about them. And uh, we're also continuing to pull together these review papers and focused commentaries. Um, those, are, I think, are our big steps for the upcoming year. Thank you for asking. And, and David, it's been such a pleasure to get to talk with you. Uh, likewise. Uh, I'll, uh, it does sound like you have quite a lot planned for the next year. So we all, we all do, it seems, as Pia's. Um, it is time to end today's podcast. Thank you again for your time today and great conversation. Uh, one final question. Just uh, you mentioned how you're at 800 members and you want to get to two to 3,000. So here's your opportunity to, to, to pitch to why listeners should sign up to, the, to your PIA. To be part of the diversity and disparities work. This is um, essential research um, for what's we're at this really exciting moment in Alzheimer's disease. And we need to understand how to bring forward these advances in diagnostics and treatment in a way that, as you said, is gonna optimize them for the most people and the people with the highest burden. And to do that, there are so many things that we don't know and so many people that we need to bring to the table that we need all hands on deck. And there's plenty of roles to fill, whether that's an interest in um, helping diversify these research cohorts that we have going on, um, working on the design of clinical trials, or whether that's conducting the numerous studies of existing data that all, that are out there to find out, you know, how do we set up protocols for study partners to make it as inclusive as possible? There's so much work um, that needs to be done. We welcome everybody to join us. You can do that. You can find us on Twitter. We're out there. You can go to the iStart website and look us up there. You can write me personally, and I'll help you get mixed up with the group. And we will be at AIC at the PIA evening or the reception that's going on. We will be in it's one Thursday of those. Thursday night, isn't it? What was that? It's Thursday night, is that right? I believe so. Yeah. Please come join us. We'll be standing there lonely, waiting, looking for conversation. So come introduce <laughs> yourself. Sounds great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Shanna, for taking the time to join us today. And uh, to all the listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, you can find profiles on myself and my brilliant guest and information on how to become involved in the iStart on our website at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk and also at www.alz.org slash iStart. There is the link in the show notes. I'm Dave Cash, and you've been listening to the Relay podcast from Dementia Researcher and the Alzheimer's Association. We will be back tomorrow, so hit subscribe on YouTube or in your favorite podcast app to ensure you don't miss an episode. Thank you. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association, bringing you research, news, career tips and support.